Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network. <clears throat> Excuse me. At PR... Just getting over a cold. <clears throat> PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. Uh, that was a little tricky for me today because I didn't realize it was daylight savings time. So I was just leaving. I was looking at the, you know, the cable box, which updates and has the accurate time. And, okay, fine, time to leave. And I look at my watch and it says, oh, my God, I'm late. <laughs> so I asked someone on the elevator, and they said, uh, yeah, it's daylight savings. So I was okay. Anyway, uh, speaking of late, I want to talk about movies today, and I'm usually way out of date. I'm going to go through some of the stuff on uh, a website I do, Cinema Discourse. And the movies are old movies, but uh, classics, ones we should all be familiar with. You know, I uh, teach a course on creativity that has at uh, in an art school. We have a mixture of students from all departments in this course. And it is one film student. So if I say... You know, who knows the movie Blade Runner, <laughs> which uh, most of my architecture students know. But these other students, other than the film student, don't, usually don't know the movie. So it's my um, thought in the back of my head that our school should have a list. You know, here are the 20 movies you have to have seen so we can talk about them. Only problem is uh, I'm sure the faculty would never be able to agree. So speaking of movies being uh, current and late, and I'm usually late, but here's one that's both. So I seen in New York Times, when was this? Um, yesterday? 48 years later, Orson Welles' last film makes its debut. Uh, it was 1970. Uh, da, 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 da. Anyway, um, the movie is The Other Side of the Wind. So Wells had worked on it for 25 years, and it sat unfinished. And uh, <coughs> finally, some producers and directors have finished it. So it should be out, uh, what, today or tomorrow? And uh, uh, a friend of mine who's... Uh, a serious film buff, which I'm not, so my approach to film is uh, very different from that of other people. But my film buff friend had been in film school when uh, one of the, the directors of the film came in with a pile of cans to his school and wanted to show and talk about the movie, and the dean wouldn't let him because they didn't have a union projectionist. Ah! Uh, you know, it, if it's a certain... If it's a certain kind of movie, I guess if it's a commercial movie, only a union projectionist can project it. Well, I guess unions have their pluses and minuses. I'm a card-carrying union member for 45 years, so uh, um, I feel I can talk about it, but not today. So 
that's something we want to all, all go see. I, you know, I love black and white films. This is both black and white and color. But I love black and white movies when they're newly restored. So I uh, couldn't get to the first showing of Walter Murch's re-editing of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, but I saw the second showing. <laughs> so there still weren't any scratches in the print. Talking about the old days when they still had prints, right? But <laughs> these uh, really great black and white movies had these incredible tonal effects. You're really dark black shadows and subtle plays of tone, which got lost in the old days when we saw them on TV because uh, TV didn't get very black. Although I notice uh, when I'm looking at my uh, my flat screen TV, we have both a Samsung and a Sony, that it's really black where it's supposed to be black. So they sort of solved that. So, you know, the aesthetic qualities, this stuff is coming back. I just uh, was thinking, I don't know where it came up, but um, it was only around 1970 when we started getting good color reproduction in magazines and books. So if you go back to the, to the 40s, 50s, and even 60s in magazines like Vogue magazine or... National Geographic, which prided itself on the absolute best uh, printing that could be done. Um, the, you could see the dots. You know, there was, uh, the way it made pink was uh, red dots with big white spaces between them. <laughs> and then we get, I think it's called con- Continuous Tone Lithograph. I'm not into printing, so... Uh, but this this revolution happened, and you got really great quality. I'm trying to think, there's a, f- a photographer of nature who did uh, black and white photos of Yosemite. Uh, what's his name? Ansel Adams. Anyway, he wouldn't let books be done of his photographs uh, because they weren't going to have the quality of his prints. Well, now they do. You know, starting in around 1970, they solved that. And uh, we've solved the problem with home TV. You can watch great movies where the print, you know, the the actual visual quality on the screen is part of the story. I, I'm always disappointed if they're doing a, a restoration of and rerun of one of my favorite movies, La Dolce Vita. I'll rush out to, uh, what's the place? Uh, film forum, and I don't go to the movies that much anymore. You know, it's great how they've gotten those Barca loungers. <laughs> Everything except the built-in vibrator. They're really trying to compete with home, but it's hard to beat home. There's nobody next to you at home with a put a you know texting on their cell phone. But hopefully, <laughs> but uh. Uh, the home quality due to these uh, really, we have a 42-inch, but I think maybe the next one will get to be a 55-inch, but uh, that's about as big as I want to get. <clears throat> but there's just this incredible quality. And then, you know, we're not getting another TV until we're seriously into 4G, and now there's already 8G, right? 
in cameras and stuff. But in um, HD, what is it, 1027 or 1087 or whatever it is, you go up close, you can see dots. You can't see them from back on the sofa. But <clears throat> in, uh, you know, you go to Best Buy. I used to go to Sears, but they don't carry TVs anymore as they slowly fade out of business. I was one of those people as a kid who used to, you know, go through the Sears catalog and fantasize all the stuff I could get. But <clears throat> anyway, you you go to Best Buy or wherever you go and get up close to a 4G TV and there's no dots, you know. They, you need a magnifying glass. So the quality is just getting absolutely fantastic. And then the color intensity and all that is getting better and better. But anyway, um, what was all that a digression? Oh, yeah. So Orson Welles' movie, we're looking forward. And I remember seeing Touch of Evil in a restored print. Absolutely beautiful and terms of the quality of the black and white. Unfortunately, Dolce Vita, I, I don't think they've gotten back at the original to make great prints because it's, it's kind of uh, grayed out. But anyway, uh, speaking of being up to date, well, that brings us up to date with an 48-year-old movie. <laughs> uh, I was wrong about 25. It's 48 years old. But Last night I just finished uh, with my wife binge-watching season six of House of Cards. So, hey, anybody up on any of this stuff wants to call in, 888-874-4888. So, interested in people's opinions of House of Cards. And, you know, we loved it. It was terrific. And... You know, it it was a little bit abstracted. It wasn't realistic about how the White House would have been run in the up through season five. And then we lost Kevin Spacey uh, for misbehaving, so we finish with Robin Wright as Madam President. And <clears throat> this season was eight episodes; they were usually thirteen, and I felt it was a little rushed. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of perfunctory. And they said, okay, we'll finish it off without Kevin Spacey. And, but very interesting, totally unrealistic about the inner workings of the White House, which, um, you know, the season, it, it's based on a British series in which I guess it would have been dealing with the British cabinet and House of Parliament. But this series... Uh, begins with Kevin Spacey as uh, Speaker of the House and way back in season one. And he was supposed to get a Secretary of State, and he gets cheated out of it. President makes another move, and he vows revenge. And the revenge is he becomes president. He gets um, He manipulates the vice president to resign, he manipulates himself to be appointed vice president, and then he manipulates the president to resign, and he's president. And 
um, that the, the machinations, of course, when you do something like that's oversimplified, just watch the, <laughs> the season finale of Elementary, which is a contemporary Sherlock Holmes and a female Watson, Joan Watson, uh, living in Brooklyn and working with the New York City police as consultants. How these TV shows make up this this category of police consultant. <laughs> anyway, uh, spoiler alert, it uh, winds up with a change of setting. <clears throat> Apparently, they had done this one with the thought that the series was ending, but they got renewed for a year. So uh, they're going to be able to pick up and looking forward. But, you know, how they that show also struck one as, how to put it, simplified. There's one police chief. There's one detective who works with them. And that's the police department. You know, um, highly simplified, unlike, also simplified, but very realistic, right? We all love law and order. I'm not too happy about law and order uh, special victims unit because which is the one that's still running. So I don't really watch those. But if there's a rerun of Law and Order, I'll, I'll usually... <laughs> they'll rerun one of them, right? It's like six in a row. Well, there goes the afternoon. Uh, but it has this realistic quality, even though, you know, it, it's simplified down to certain characters. And I had a, a colleague who worked as an ADA, and she says, that's what it's like. <laughs> so I, I got inside word that uh, it's uh, it has a realistic quality. I don't care for Special Victims Unit because it's usually some horrible sex crime and in the back in the back story and then the victim, you know, murders the abuser and has to go on trial for it. You know, some of these people... Pardon my moral commentary here. Some people should just get a gold star, you know, <laughs> and not not go on trial. But anyway, <clears throat> what struck me, and if anybody wants to call in, I'd be interested in opinions, uh, about season six of House of Cards is it was incredibly Shakespearean. It's a combination of Macbeth and Richard III, and lots of people get murdered. There's a, there's a scene, end of one of the episodes, where it's like that scene in the, is it the, yeah, the first Godfather, where uh, Michael is taking over, and right during, while he's at the baptism of his baby, uh, his henchmen are wiping out a half a dozen uh, rivals. And you've seen after scene. My <laughs> the one that gets me is the elevator scene, you know, where this fat um, mafioso has to run up the stairs with a, a box of flowers with a big ribbon around it. And he, he finally gets to the floor he's headed for, huffing and puffing, rips open the box where he's got a shotgun in there and takes out his shotgun the elevator door opens and blam, you know, there goes one of Michael's rivals. 
He tosses a flower box and a shotgun into the elevator. All these guys are not so worried about fingerprints in those days for some reason. But anyway, uh, there's a scene like that in House of Cards where, you know, a whole bunch of people get wiped out in in scenes at the end of uh, the episode. And, you know, which other than certain accusations against certain political families— <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen in contemporary American politics, but it does happen historically. You know, when uh, the current dictator of Korea took over, uh, some people died. When Stalin took over, dozens of people died. And and Richard III, he, you know, kills the children in the bell tower and, and all that, which is the way it really was. Uh, a the king that takes over has to kill all potential rivals. And you get these um, in ancient China, and particularly in Byzantium, uh, you get these <coughs> um, even children of concubines could qualify to become er- emperor. It didn't have to be a wife. And as a result, you've got, you had these uh, concubines or courtesans killing each other's children to eliminate potential rivals so their kid would be the only one left. Um, And depending upon how much you're into sociobiology, uh, we see that in in the um, animal kingdoms, you know, where if a new lion comes in, defeats uh, an older male lion, takes over the pride, all the females are now his, he'll kill their children so that, uh, particularly nursing children, so that because of the nursing will stop the females from being fertile. And then they can get started on his DNA. So, uh, and even uh, among, you know, these English kings, even if someone was not going to be a, uh, a rival, you know, not was going to not going to show up with uh, an army and challenge the king, there's still the danger that somebody who wanted to challenge the king would use one of these close relatives as the uh, next pretender to the throne. So if that next pretender was eliminated. Um, that danger uh, would be eliminated. So we see a lot of that quality of uh, family rivalry going on in and allies and backstabbing and conspiracy, rich in Shakespearean quality in season six of House of Cards. So uh, highly recommended and available all there for binge watching on Netflix. So I was thinking uh, about this um, past couple of days, and led me to think of what I might talk about today. And I thought I talk about movies and my archetypal approach. So I was struck in uh, what was the movie. Is there one movie where this really came to mind? So I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell. And in the 
late 1960s. Joseph Campbell, mythologist, and if you don't know who he is, just go to visionaries.podbean.com. Actually, first go to Wikipedia. Uh, But if you go to my archive of these shows, you'll find two interviews with um, Bob Walter, who's the president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which uh, I had been involved with over the years. And I so I interviewed Bob about who Campbell was and how to access him. But Campbell's a comparative mythologist, his label for himself, and looked at all the world's mythologies and had a very broad definition of mythology. Um, he would look at a culture and he would look at the architecture, art, religion, social structure, and mythology. And he called that mythology, but he was really looking at the whole symbolic structure of a culture. And he was forced to retire around 67. He taught at Sarah Lawrence, lived in Manhattan with his wife, Jean Erdman, who was an important modern dancer and is still alive. And Campbell died in the 80s. And um, they had mandatory retirement then. So Campbell was forced to retire from Sarah Lawrence. And that's, you know, all he had ever done as well, besides writing books, which did not generate a lot of money. So it was, you know, like, what am I going to do? Well, um, I now have a perspective that 67 is pretty young. (laughs) Uh, Particularly someone Campbell, who was a um, truly a champion athlete. He uh, by a hundredth of a second, did not make the, I think it's 1926 Olympics in Germany. But he ran against, well, uh, you can see about that Olympics in the movie Chariots of Fire, which is about some of the runners. And Campbell was a runner and had run against uh, some of the figures you see in that movie. And so he was a champion athlete. And then Just before the stock market crashed and the family lost all their money, um, Campbell's father bought him a lifetime membership to the New York Athletic Club. So he swam every day, um, you know, like a mile, (laughs) Uh, even into old age. So he was quite vital at 67. He was quite vital uh, uh, later to his 80s. So what is he going to do? Well, he... The day he retired, he got an invitation to lecture at a conference on psychedelics in Iceland. And he would talk about the parallels between the acid trip and the hero journey, uh, which he had brought to our attention in his 1947 book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Ah, we're going to tie this into movies shortly. So... Um, tying that into movies. Well, that book was a bestseller in 1947 and then was uh, you know, on the shelf. And I was trying to penetrate Joseph Campbell. I mean, where do I jump in? Because <clears throat> right when I got interested, he was finishing up the series Mass of God, four monster books, you know, five to 700 pages each. And then here, uh, here are the Thousand Faces. And at that time, the place was the A Street Bookstore. 
on A Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. And it was a wonderful place. You know, one of our great cultural losses was uh, that book no longer being with us, that bookstore no longer being with us. But anyway, uh, just browsing in that bookstore was, I did my master's thesis out of that bookstore. Um, never went to the library in New York. Did use a little bit of the libraries in Philadelphia. I, I was at Penn. But um, commuting back to New York. But anyway, uh, somebody said to me, one of my uh, acquaintances, hey, that guy Joseph Campbell is giving lectures. Well, you know, I'd seen the books. I picked them up. I flipped through them. I couldn't figure out what I'm, what, what, what's good. What, how do I get into these? Where do I start? What's this about? So I start going to the lectures. And his wife uh when real estate was still affordable, <laughs> had an, a whole floor uh, <clears throat> in a loft building on Fifth Avenue, just off Fourteenth Street. So, uh, her dance studio. She was an important modern dancer, came out, who came out of Martha Graham's studio. Uh, she had been a student of Joseph Campbell's at um, Sarah Lawrence. And Martha Graham had taught at Sarah Lawrence, and Jean Erdman had become uh, a Martha Graham dancer and then founded her own company. Well, I started going to these lectures, and i uh, they were the most exciting thing I ever saw. I mean, these were incredible. And <clears throat> fortunately, they just before he died, uh, most of them were videotaped. Unfortunately... The they're not available, and there's a whole copyright thing. There's a couple of years to go, and they will become available. And I have a feeling they'll become among the most popular stuff online. Now there are audio tapes, so if you go to Joseph Campbell Foundation, jcf.org, you can get the audio tapes. So I, you know, walk around listening to audio tapes, and I like them in Campbell's voice. His voice is incredible. But as well, <laughs> quite a few of his books now are coming are out in audiobooks. And they're very well read, different readers uh, for different of the books, but they're all a good job. So I've been listening to those. So I keep immersed in this material. Well, trying to think of the movie that struck me that... Um, how mythological it was. It might come to me. But anyway, I spoke to, uh, I think it's Dan Brown, who had this course in movies uh, varyingly at NYU and the New School Fund. I don't know if it's still there. Anybody who's taken it recently, call in. 888-874-4888. Anyway, <clears throat> you take this course, and he would have uh, feature films before they came out. And then you would have a star or director of the movie that he would interview. So this was the thing to do. It would be packed. And he would, the course was always sold out. So anyway, I approached him and I said, uh, uh, hey, you know, we should, there should, you should have a website. I should do it with you. And he said, why don't you do it? I said, well, you've got the following. And so never happened. But then... 
I <laughs> met, um, I was working with the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and there's a fellow working there editing posthumous Campbell books, of which maybe a dozen have come out, all recommended. But anyway, John David Ebert, E-B-E-R-T, no relation to the film critic. Although John's also a film critic. So John uh, <clears throat> was uh, went to college but didn't go beyond, but was an, well, just a literary genius. He, he would encounter something like he encounters Spengler, and he says, oh, Spengler refers to, well, he started with Joseph Campbell because he was a student. Campbell came up. Campbell kept referring to Spengler, so he reads Spengler. Spengler refers to uh, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, so he reads Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. I mean, he puts all the books on the shelf and then reads them. So <clears throat> he also watches TV so <laughs> uh, and goes to and is into movies. So he gave a paper at a Campbell Foundation meeting in which he talked about the movie Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. And, of course, the movie is literary. It's based in part on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which, oh, I've been listening to, I've listened to that once and I'm listening to it again. The opening of that where they're on on a boat and anchored in the Thames, and then Marlowe starts to tell his story. Uh, what writing? Oh, just richly uh, picturesque writing. Anyway, <clears throat> um, based also on the Odyssey. And then um, when... The assassin encounters Marlon Brando up the river after he's gone through all these adventures. Brando is reading from him from the book, um, Jesus, if I, if I think of this in advance, you know, I can take notes down. But anyway, is reading from these key mythological studies. Oh, he's reading uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, the Wasteland, and you see on his desk um, Fraser's The Golden Bough, and then uh, another key mythological book, and they are telling you what the, the movie means. What, you know, it's he's seeing these books on the, the desk is a part of uh, Coppola structuring the mythological structure of the movie. Well, I don't think anyone ever saw that except Ebert. So Ebert's presenting this, and I said, okay, this is a person I have to do a movie website with. I don't know how we're going to get an audience, <clears throat> but, um, you know, the Internet. So I figured, excuse me, <coughs> um, even if there's only, what, <laughs> pick a number, a thousand people out there interested in the mythological structure of movies as opposed to, you know, this movie, great, this movie, terrible. Uh, even if there's only a thousand, hopefully the Internet can find them and we'll have an audience. Well, uh, interesting thing happened. 
we started the website. It's called cinemadiscourse.com. And we've since lost interest in it. I haven't done any. Ebert did something uh, about six months ago. I did something. Uh, I haven't done something in a couple of years. But my previous, my older reviews are all there, and they're brilliant. Ebert took a bunch of his down and put them in a book. So if you go to Amazon and put in John David Ebert, he's got a dozen books, actually two dozen books. And some of the recent ones are, if you're into movies, um, Star Wars, scene by scene. (coughs) Excuse me. The Shining, scene by scene. Apocalypse Now, scene by scene. So they're great guides if you're a film buff, you're in a movie course, and you're... uh, (coughs) excuse me, reviewing that movie, Uh, get the book. But anyway, one of his books is a couple dozen reviews that had been on Senator Discourse. He took them down. I'm going to try to persuade him to put them back up. But anyway, you'll find a lot of Ebert's reviews on Cinema Discourse, and um, you'll uh, find a bunch of mine. So I want to talk about my reviews, but I think first I'll take a break so I can cough, and then uh, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I'm Gary Knoll, the founder of the Progressive Radio Network. Today we have more than 80 producers bringing forth the most progressive and most liberating information, the kind of information you do not regularly hear on any of the mainstream or alternative media. You can help us now. Up to this point, I have virtually supported the Progressive Radio Network, all of its expenses and payroll, myself. But we would like to expand our reach. We'd like to do far more. We'd like to be able to advertise on Facebook and let others know we exist. We are the number one progressive radio network in the world. In fact, we have programs that are most listened to in all of progressive radio. But we could go a lot further. Our message could reach a lot more people, especially at a time when people are desperate for honest, objective insights on the important topical issues of our day. How can you help? It's simple. Go to prn.fm. Go to our main page. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little button, Support Now. And then whatever you can contribute on a monthly basis will make a big difference. It will help get the message out. It will help inform more people. It will give them more choices. This is where you'll hear in the independent candidates and the people looking to challenge the corruption in government and the industries. But we need to get our reach out further. So please, whatever you can afford on a monthly basis, and there's some suggestions there, and it'll be automatic. All right, thank you very much for continuing to help us help you and the rest of the world on these important issues.
Back from my coughing fit, this is John Lobel. This is Visionaries. You hear us every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time, anytime at visionaries.podbean.com. And uh, so all the back shows are there. And I'm talking about movies and my website I do with John David Ebert, cinemadiscourse.com. Highly recommended. So I try to look at movies in terms of, interestingly, uh, their mythological structure, their, what they're about mythologically or archetypally. And uh, there's a limitation to that, which is, who knows the story? So Chopin is, uh, for a woman, uh, plays a piece that he had composed, and she says, that's beautiful. What does it mean? And he sits down at the piano again and plays it again. <laughs> it doesn't mean it is. <laughs> well, all the movies I'm going to mention is or are, but I think we can also talk about their um, archetypal structure. So first one I'll mention is um, uh, Phantom of the Opera <clears throat> and... Where do I have that? Boy, that's so long. But I subtitled the... Oh, so you find all these reviews on cinemadiscourse.com. And one way to find them is to the search on the website itself. There's a search uh, button. And just put Lobel in that search button. And it'll... Because these are buried all over the place and archived and all kinds of stuff. But if you just search Lobel, it'll pull up... uh, um, all my reviews. So, in Phantom of the Opera, I subtitled that, How to Review an Archetypal Movie, a Primer. (laughs) So, um, what I mean by that is, there's, there are some movies that are telling, what, eternal classic stories. So, think, uh, for example, I had on uh, Volger, the author of the book. What's it called? I don't remember. Anyway, you'll find him on um, visionaries.podbean.com. But he did that famous seven-page memo at Disney about summarizing Campbell's Hero Journey book. So the hero journey is one structure for movies. Um Separation from ordinary reality, journey to a realm of fabulous forces where a decisive victory is won and a return to enrich the world. So that's most movies right there. But he talks about, for example, how so working on The Lion King and then it clicks. Somebody said, oh, my God, it's Hamlet. And uh, at that point, what, you know, how they were going to structure the movie, what it was about, how it was going to work, clicked into place. Well, in Phantom of the Opera, you see, um, so what's, you know, what is it archetypally about? And it's how, it's two things. One is how this woman, uh, what's her name? Uh, Let's see. Christine. (laughs) She has two challenges. As she comes in, as she matures. And she's at the opera. She's a 
you know, young singer. She's not yet uh, a star. She's uh, getting lessons. Well, uh, two things. A, how she negotiates her artistry. In other words, there's your life and your art. And if you are devoted to your life, she's a woman, so I'll say, you become a housewife. You give up your art. Um, If you're devoted to your art, you give up having a family. And uh, which is the story of the red shoes, where the art uh, takes over and destroys uh, the artist. She has no life. She's only an artist. And then, you know, driven to death by the magical red shoes. Um, now, let me just note that Phantom of the Opera is apparently, I read, the most financially successful piece of entertainment of all time. In other words, it's made more money than anything, any other movie, any other, the play has. Made more money than any movie, any play, the circus, Cirque du Soleil, whatever. It's made more money. And why do people keep going? Well, similar to Titanic, you know, women uh, drag their, the men in their lives there to say, this is how you should act. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is how you should be. So two things. One is she has to negotiate the... A relationship between her art and her family, and she does it successfully. She's not destroyed, as is, for example, the the dancer in the red shoes. Secondly, she has to juggle three male figures. So the three male figures in archetypally in a woman's life: the father, the demon bad boy lover, and the good boy, husband, lover. So how do you, um, you know, the uh, if you don't negotiate that right, you could end up like the spinster in Washington Square, trying to think of the name of the movie, but I think James's novel is Washington Square, where she ends up living with her father in a little townhouse, and he dies, and she's there alone because she never was able to break away from her father, family, growing up and make her own world, her own family, her own life, which is, for example, what Little Mermaid's about. Uh, these, all these stories are, these archetypes are beautifully um, handled in Disney movies, which is why they're so successful. But anyway... Then there's the bad boy lover, and that's the phantom. Uh, he is also the source of her art. He, when she first encounters him, he's a voice coming up through the air duct to her room from the basement of the opera house, and she thinks it's the ghost of her father. So, aha, so now we're confusing the father and the bad boy lover. So that's an interesting dynamic. And then she encounters him for who he really is. And then there's the 
nobleman who comes pounding in with his, <laughs> looking like Fabio, you know, with his blonde hair bouncing as he strides across the uh, the lobby and uh, declares his love for her. And and then you get the danger of the two, uh, the two lovers, the husband lover and the bad boy lover. One could kill the other. That's not good. Uh, she negotiates that, keeps them both alive. <laughs> And then finally, has her artistic success, placates her bad boy lover, marries the husband, uh, nobleman lover, has a family. And then when the old husband in his wheelchair, you know, goes to her grave to leave the toy that he bought from the auction at the closing opera house, he finds the rose. She's been seeing the bad boy lover every weekend all along. <laughs> he even tutored their kids. <laughs> Who knows? You know, we don't, he does, the movie doesn't say, but she has kept alive both of these worlds. So it's her success in doing that that makes this such a compelling movie. And then you can get into criticizing the movie. Um, good, bad, it seems to have faded from view. It doesn't have the stature that the that the musical has, which is still on Broadway and everywhere else around the world. Hopefully will be indefinitely. Incredible uh, musical. And, <clears throat> but I like to start a review like this by saying, what is it about? Now, how well did it do that? That then becomes... Uh, discussion of the of the movie. So now when we get that at archetypal level, let's look at something else. I'm a big fan, uh, we all are, of the Alien series. And, you know, the, with Alien and Aliens and all that kind of stuff. But they, uh, what I think is so compelling about particularly the first one, is that the alien isn't evil. The, in my review, you can look it up, it starts with, uh, actually the review is of Prometheus, the uh, latest alien movie, which is uh, goes back to, you know, where did the alien come from? And uh, so there's a wasp that paralyzes a tarantula, buries its egg in the living body of the tarantula, and then buries it. And then the baby wasps are born and eat from the inside out the living tarantula. Well, that's pretty horrible. Um, but uh, what are we doing when we eat Kentucky Fried Chicken? <laughs> you know, those poor chickens. And we managed to hide that from ourselves, but that's what we're doing. Life lives on life. And so, you know, nature is not benign. It's rough stuff. And so the first Alien movie really does a good job of presenting that, that, you know, we have to resist that. And Sigourney Weaver does defeat the alien, but the monster, but... And then anyway, it gets into interesting spaces. So 
in the last of that series, um, the spaceship returns to Earth with two people still alive, two women. One is Sigourney Weaver, who has alien DNA in her. And the other is a robot. <laughs> what does that say about our future? Well, that, I mean, I love movies that are able to be adventurous that way. But now I'm going to be a little critical of uh, Prometheus. In it, um, an expedition goes to a remote planet where there was an outpost of beings from another world called the Engineers. Uh, the members of the expedition pieced together that the engineers had created life on Earth and that those on the outpost had created a vicious bioweapon, the alien, for the purpose of destroying human life on Earth. But their bioweapon got out of control and killed the engineers on the outpost. The movie ends with the emergence of the first of the aliens that we see in the older movies and with our sole-surviving intrepid female explorer taking off for the engineer's home planet to solve the mystery of why they created us and why they want to destroy us. So, both of which we'll presumably find out in sequels to come, which we haven't seen yet. But um, there's something I don't like about the movie, and that is Joseph Campbell very brilliantly describes two kinds of origin myths. One in we can associate with the East, and that is we are natural creatures. Spirit is in all things. Therefore, spirit, humans, and nature are one integrated thing. We have these names for different aspects of that thing, but it's all one thing. In the biblical tradition, um, foundational to the three biblical religions, uh, you recall there are several versions of um, Genesis. There are several stories in the Genesis chapter, uh, one in which God creates Adam and Eve, one in which he creates Adam and then creates Eve from Adam's rib. But at one point it says he created them out of the dead clay or dust of the earth and then breathed the spirit of life into them, into Adam. So uh, we are dead material and spirit comes from without so without that breathing of spirit into us, there would not be life, animation, spirit. Now, in the first one, we can sort of see how we self-create. We generate out of the earth, uh, out of the universe. In the other one, creation comes from without. So you think of a movie like 2001, big fan, but it says we did not evolve our intelligence on our own, but rather an alien race that presumably goes seeding intelligence throughout the universe 
took these hominid ape-like creatures and embedded the spark into them through the touching of the monolith so that our spirit, our intelligence, our humanness comes from without. And it's part of a tradition that we're too stupid or the ancients were too stupid to build pyramids. Uh, Alien uh, space creatures uh, had to build the pyramids. When I lecture on the pyramids in architecture school, beginning of the lecture is there are no alien uh, there are no space aliens. <laughs> Human being, all it took was a lot of ropes <laughs> and a lot of people to drag those stones around. Uh, they were not levitated by space aliens. And more sophisticated, much more sophisticated than the pyramids are uh, the Gothic cathedrals. And we have a lot of records about how those were built. And then we get to something even more grandiose in the Gothic cathedrals, uh, the um, St. Peter's with the central architect being Michelangelo. Well, we, we got the records. We got the billing. We got the contracts. We got the correspondence. Uh, we know how that thing was built. There are documents you know, showing it at various stages as various architects took over the project. There's no space aliens necessary to build St. Peter's or the Gothic cathedrals or the pyramids. So this idea that there's this alien intelligence that seeded the earth, that created our intelligence, that built our first civilizations, it's that's the mythological tradition that Prometheus is within, and it's the one to which I am objecting and preferring one in which it grows, it, it self-generates. You know, we now know in certain mathematical forms and geometries that there are um, mathematical forms that can self-generate, that can start with very simple rules and make worlds of complexity. So that's the mythology I prefer Let's wrap up. This is John Lobel. We've been talking about archetypes and mythology in movies. Maybe we'll uh, pick up on this. I didn't get to, I never get to 90, I got the table here covered with papers. Didn't get to 90% of it. But anyway, see you next week. <laughs>